Today's episode is sponsored by Warp and Weft Textiles, an online fabric store operating on Coast Salish land. Warp and Weft is a plastics-free business offering woven fabrics and independent patterns. As one of the few stockists of Tauco magazine, Warp and Weft shares the quarterly sewing publication's emphasis on climate, culture, and community. This month, Craft Industry Alliance listeners are welcome to take 15% off fabric at Warp and Weft with the discount code WEFT15CIA. That's W-E-F-T-1-5-C-I-A. Thank you so much, Warp and Weft Textiles. And now, here's the show. to episode 220 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we are talking about building a craft kit business with my guest, Stephanie Carswell. Stephanie is the founder and creative director of Hawthorne Handmade, a textile craft kit design company based in Dorset in Southern England. Hawthorne Handmade began in 2013 with a small range of needle felting kits and over the last nine years has developed from a small side business started in the back room of Stephanie's previous business, a gallery and haberdashery slash workshop space, to a well-known creative company selling embroidery, cross-stitch, needle felting, weaving, and felt craft kits through almost 600 stores around the world, including over 250 in the United States. Stephanie lives in a rural village nearby to their, her business with her rescue lurcher, Cloda, I hope I'm saying that right, and partner Owen, who is also Hawthorne's website developer. When she's not busy with the business, she loves playing tennis, puttering around in her garden, and crashing on the sofa in front of Netflix. Stephanie Carswell, welcome. Hi there, Abby. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to have you. And I love your business. I love kits. I love craft kits. Um, I'm a big consumer of craft kits and always have been. So I'm very excited to talk about them because I also think it's something that a lot of our listeners would like to do, would like to create and sell. And there's a lot that goes into having a successful kit business. So I'm excited to dive in, but before we get there, let's just go back a little bit and tell me, um, where did you grow up? Yeah, sure. So I'm from the UK. Um, I actually grew up in the Midlands um, in Nottingham, uh, known for Robin Hood all around the world. Um, so uh, grew up in a really small little village there where my parents still live. So I still get to go home to this tiny little one street village with a dead end. Um, you can't actually go through it uh, called Thrumpton, which I don't think could sound more English if it tried. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I lived there for, yeah, up until I was 21. Um, and then now I live in Dorset, which is in Southern UK. Um, so we're near the coast here, whereas I came from a total landlocked middle of England area. So it's lovely being here by the sea. We're actually, we're inland just a little bit, but it's less than an hour to the coast. And, it's and gorgeous. is where you are now pretty rural? Yeah, it's really rural. It's one of the most rural counties in England. Um, so we don't have uh, like a motorway or a highway or anything. Uh, we don't have a city, um, like a large city. We've got large towns, but there's not much else. There's a lot of cows. There's a lot of fields. <laughs> it's, um, it's pretty rural. Wow, that sounds really lovely, though. So um, when you were growing up, I know you were pretty crafty. What did your parents do for work? Yeah, so, well, my dad's an engineer, um, or was an engineer, and also worked kind of in the health and safety side of things. Um, so he was a sheet metal worker by trade, um, and he worked uh, for people like Rolls-Royce and Rally Bikes, uh, making jet engines and, um, and bikes and things. So he's really 
handsy, does a lot, does a lot with his hands, uh, always making stuff, always drawing as well. Um, and I certainly learned to draw from him. Um, and they, I always love when he'd always tell me they'd be getting their work done and they'd have finished in the first few hours the work they needed to do that day. And then he'd make stuff afterwards. So I have a, a ring that I believe he made for his mum originally um, that is an offcut from a titanium uh, piece of a Rolls-Royce jet engine. <laughs> <laughs> so um so he's really yeah always making things um and then I, I say moved into more of an admin role towards the end before he retired um and my mum is in education um so she was a lecturer um well she had a bit of a random start she was a radiographer at one point um sold pharmaceuticals at one point um and then yeah was a lecturer and ended up um as pro vice chancellor of birmingham city university um so she's had a really amazing career um, I've done a lot of work in business. Um, and then before they had kids, she was also always making. She was going to evening classes. She learned pottery, woodworking, various other pe- bits and pieces like that. So there's always been kind of making around. And my grandmother as well was always making. And I used to kind of spend quite a lot of time with her growing up. And so what were you like as a kid? Uh, yeah, always making something, always drawing. I love drawing Disney characters. I'd sit and copy them. I'd get you could get the books of kind of like how to draw Goofy and <laughs> how to draw Mickey, and I'd sit and just draw for hours. I remember we've got this. Uh, I've still got it actually, a little book of animals, like rural animals of Britain, kind of thing. And I'd just sit and copy the drawings. Um, I'd make little kind of air dry clay creatures, um, anything like that. I didn't actually sew much, which is interesting because it's gone in that direction. I remember I did like one sewing project in a kind of home economics class at school, and that was about it. I really didn't sew much. Um, so yeah, always always drawing. And um, my brother, I've got an older brother, but he was he's nearly four four years older than me, so he was off to doing his own thing. Um, so I'd spend quite a bit of time just yeah at the kitchen table doodling away Mm -hmm. yeah and so when you went to university what did you sort of plan for your future for your career what did you think you wanted to do yeah I actually did arts and event management at university (laughs) so it was like a vocational course a hands-on course so it was working in festivals kind of how to manage festivals doing booking acts all that kind of stuff and then it was also things like theater management and gallery management Mm. um it was a bit of a quirky course really it it kind of doesn't quite exist anymore unfortunately we were about the last year to do it um there was only 16 of us um so it was pretty small course yeah Um, but it was really interesting it was really hands-on on and you had to budget and run events and you basically each year started up another mini business and ran an event with a small team of you. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, it, it was event space versus kit space, but it sounds like in some ways it was like great business training as far as like budgeting and planning and projecting, you know, what's going to happen in the future. And, um, and so it's still creative, but a little bit and a little bit along a different line. Yeah, absolutely. It was really creative still because we were doing things like um, finding artists and working with artists. Um, but yeah, it was things, yeah, budgeting a large scale festival is a great, great learning tool. Um, and also and just being able to work with a lot of moving parts and figuring that out because you have that kind of event and there's just stuff all over the place all the time yeah um and being able to keep on top of that was a really really good learning experience and um i I did work for a local festival for a little while afterwards um but uh, then ended up going off in a different direction right yeah no i think that would be great training because um one of the things that i know i have faced um when you're growing a company is just overwhelm and feeling like there's so many things and um it's it feels like impossible and so i feel like it's great to have had that experience um and professional training in a sheltered way where you know you're still learning so yeah that's great very very cool thing to study in university so um so you said you you worked in that for a little while and then i know um i think you worked at a gallery and then started your own gallery so tell us a little bit about that piece of the journey Yeah, so, yeah, after uni, I worked for a local craft centre called uh, Wolford Mill, and it's in this gorgeous old mill building, um, and 
it got kind of all the amazing old beams and stuff through the building. Uh, there was points where, because of where the old millworks inside the building had gone through the floors, you could look from like the fourth floor down and kind of see the um, ground floor and stuff. It was an incredible building with a, a, literally with a stream running through it because um, it was a mill building. And it's been turned into a, uh, an art space um, and lo- loads of local artists and contemporary craft. Um, and that you've got makers on site. So there's a lady working there with a loom, there's printmakers, artists, everything, um, and a cafe around the corner as well. It's a lovely space. And I, I just did a bit of everything, really. I helped um, answer emails. I helped them on their website. I ordered the toilet roll. I was yeah, a bit of a kind of anything they needed me to do, worked in the shop. Um, but it was my first real proper modern introduction to contemporary craft at that point. I kind of hadn't really been involved so much in that side. Of things I've been really focused on the music side with looking at festivals and um, yeah it was eye-opening I fell in love I really did yeah and it's interesting to think about contemporary craft because I think that's exactly the right word um, there's like sort of different tiers I guess of craft sometimes I, I might call that category like fine craft I'm not really sure it's sort of like yeah. like um, glass blowing and like book you know some some types of book making or book binding and um, some types of woodworking, there's just this sort of like elevated sort of craft. And then it crosses over sometimes into sort of craft that you might think of as like, well, what Hawthorne Handmade sells, like craft kits or what you find on Etsy and that kind of thing. Do you, do you know what I mean? There's kind of like yeah. these st- these sort of differences between those two yeah, uh, categories. It's, it's like you say art and yeah, what is art? It's got so much underneath it. Craft's the same, um, that you can have stuff that, yeah, a, a kid, uh, like a little, a six-year-old can pick up a little children's craft kit and they are crafting. And somebody could have done a seven-year apprentice in making chairs um, and they are crafting. It, and it is, you, you've got one word that covers so much. And there's definitely, I've come across quite a bit of confusion and, and moving from the contemporary craft world. So yeah, I, I did then open my own contemporary craft gallery um, and being very much in that space where it was that higher end. It's really kind of stunning silver work. Um, we actually had a book binding exhibition. Interesting, you mentioned books uh, called By the Book um, uh, that really focused on all of that side of things. Stunning blown glass, ceramics, kind of people, stuff that people really are dedicating their lives to. Um, and then I have shifted to the more homemade side of things. Um, but yeah, I and I feel there's a lot of judgment amongst people across the term and what's proper craft and all of that stuff. And I, I hate that. I think all, all of it is so long as you are making something with your hands and getting the enjoyment out of that 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 brings, then there shouldn't be any judgment there. Um, and you, everything that's made is beautiful in its own way, whether it's because it's come from a place of skill or because it's come from a place of heart. I don't think it matters. No, I don't think so either. And I feel like in and all of those folks need to have a business too. need to run a business too, right? There's all like for all of them, there's business skills involved if you are going to be like monetizing what you're making. So, you know, it's not like anybody is sort of removed from that either. It's, 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 you know, anyway, I agree. We should get rid of that judgment. So, okay. So you ran this um, gallery that you opened and it, it was um, Hawthorne Contemporary Arts and Crafts. So it had that Hawthorne name in it, which we, which carried forward into the kit business. Um, and it was then that you actually started making kits while you were there, right? Yes. Yeah, so I sat the gallery and then I started to teach myself needle felting within the first year of having the gallery space. Um, it was pretty quiet on some days. <laughs> I was looking for something interesting to do, new skill. And I wanted to make some props for the window. It was coming up to Halloween and I'd seen a felted pumpkin um, online somewhere. And this is way back when it's kind of I, I have to remind people sometimes that uh, this would be 2010. Um, and needle felting was not really a known craft at yeah. all. It wasn't, it wasn't for a good few years after that. Um, uh, so I, I dove in quite early on the needle felting and taught myself. I bought a kit. Um, I say kit. It was a pack of wool and a very basic set of instructions and some needles. I actually bought it from the States because I couldn't 
find anything local to me um, and got going and I, totally addicted straight away, couldn't stop um, and started making my own pieces, selling my own pieces and then teaching. Um, so the main thing was teaching workshops and I started teaching both in my own space um, and then at lots of other galleries, um, kind of local festivals, that kind of thing, um, private classes, people booking me for their local WI groups, like women's institute groups, um, all that kind of stuff. And then they started asking for kits, um, something to take home, something their auntie would really love to have a go at this, but she couldn't make the workshop, but that kind of thing. So I did a little starter kit, which was just like a brown bag, uh, a few bits of wool, a block of foam in it and some needles and a very, very basic sheet instructions and sold that under the shop name. Um, and then it was from that that the kind of idea of doing it properly sparked and I started kind of working on an actual set of designs, which were animals. Um, and that took me about, I think about six months. Um, and I ended up launching that in, uh, it was about yeah May 2013. Um, and May is the month of the hawthorn. Um, so it's known as the May tree um, in lots of folklore stuff because uh, it, it tends to flower in May. Um, and it kind of, yeah, it worked keeping the name and the alliteration was always a nice thing as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a great name. Um, okay, so that, it's so interesting. So then you started um, having these kits. You had a, a, like a small series of animal-based needle felting kits. And at what point did you realize, wait a minute, this is actually what I'm best at doing or what I want to be doing. And this gallery space that I have is maybe secondary or is not as important. Yeah, so the gallery space, I loved it. I loved buying stuff for it. I loved finding artists and things. But the actual day-to-day -day running and getting people through the door and making money was hard work. It's the hardest I've ever worked. And we've had some really tough times with Hawthorne Handmade over the years. But God, the, sh the shop was going home at the end of the day, not, not knowing where uh, your next rent payment's going to come from. Um, and then once we launched the kits, within the first month, I'd gotten six wholesale accounts. And I hadn't really tried. <laughs> they just kind of came about uh, for a few contacts and a, a little bit, a, an email here and there. Um, and then kind of the second month, I think that had more than doubled. And the shop was still really, really quiet. And then my lease was coming up. And it really made sense that this was obviously taking off. I was, as I say, obsessed with needle felting um, and were really early on it there wasn't really anybody else doing anything uh, there was one or two little um kit companies kicking around but not not much um and i yeah saw something there and realized that yeah i, I was uh, flogging a dead horse with the uh, shop <laughs> i want to take a moment now to talk about our sponsor warp and weft textiles Warp and Weft Textiles is owned and operated by husband and wife team Jay Havner and Michelle Collier. Jay is the muscle, and Michelle is a hand weaver with a degree in fiber arts and a lifetime of learning textile-based skills from her elders and juniors. Mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Warp and Weft operates from a remote island on the maritime border between British Columbia and Washington State. This location is essential because it's at the center of Warp and Weft's commitment to environmental justice specifically in its mission to keep plastic out of its business practices, as well as out of the workspaces of their fellow Wefties, as Warp and Weft customers are fondly called. None of the products they offer contain plastics, and they give first priority to vendors who are also plastics-free or are actively working towards significant plastic reduction. The fabric stock by Warp and Weft are carefully chosen, not only for containing zero plastics, they are also selected for high quality natural materials, beautiful design work, and respect for every maker's creative practice. Warp and Weft knows anything worth making is worth making to last. And the fabrics are truly the real star of Warp and Weft. Specialties include traditional and contemporary Japanese textiles, hand spun, hand woven, and hand block printed fabrics from India, organic cotton prints from Finland, beautiful Ankara and Shui Shui cotton prints from several African countries, and a broad variety of shot woven solids appropriate for fashion sewing and quilt making. So check them out. That's Warp and Weft Textiles. Thank you so much. And now back to my conversation with Stephanie. 
Right, right. And I think it's so important to just be able to pivot and not feel like, oh, that was a failure, but like that taught me what I needed to do, you know, next. So, and listening to that feedback of, um, you know, all of these, all this interest, this burgeoning interest in, in the kits and especially in, in needle felting. Um, okay. So you then are now working full time doing these kits. Um, and um, I'm assuming the packaging had to get better than the brown paper bag. Um, and maybe you um, expanded out just from um, needle felting. So um, talk us through the sort of next stage. Yeah. So kind of, it is nine years, but yeah, the first few years, um, yeah, we, we we had brown craft boxes after the bag um, with labels on, uh, but that was um, that was pretty good at the time. There wasn't uh, people in the craft world weren't kind of doing fancy packaging or anything, and they they looked they looked good. Um, and um, I it was just me, and I had a little desk set up in our tiny little spare room at home, and then I worked out of um, like a yellow door storage unit, so I would go in close the door no windows freezing cold no no electricity and um just put the lights on that was all you had or the lights that go off when you stop moving after a while those kind um and pack kits and get the orders out and the girls in the office that ran the storage unit would make me cups of tea um and they'd like handle all my parcels for me so they'd hold on to them for the guys to come and pick up um they were they were superb i wouldn't i don't think it's strange those little people that happen along the way yeah uh, that had such an impact and they were so supportive even though they really didn't need to be um, and I started off with one little unit and then I needed more space and I moved into another little unit and I kind of ended up with my little like empire in the corner of this storage um, <laughs> space with people coming in like putting their, their like spare mattresses and stuff <laughs> next to me um, and then it got to the point that that really was just of the, the business had grown to a point that that was that wasn't uh, sustainable anymore I really needed something else and I was really lucky to find an amazing unit on a um, local farm nearby it's actually really odd it's an old cattle shed with like an, a, a um, extension on this old cattle shed and it had been built for a another company a, um, a telecommunications company a few years beforehand about 10 years beforehand and my partner actually used to work in the same building uh, when it was built for that old uh, the other company and then it had become a children's nursery so it had this amazing mural on the wall with like pigs and tractors and stuff um, and it's about about a thousand square feet and um, I moved in there on my own still so I still hadn't got any like staff or anything it was still just myself um, with the view that I was going to run workshops from there as well like, which I, I did for for about 18 months um, and everything just it's been very organic it just kind of I kept on getting new wholesale customers that's really what's grown the business is the wholesale side of things getting the website kind of rolling, getting more views on Etsy and getting that kind of ticking over nicely. Um, and then come January 2015, I took on my first staff member um, who was very much part-time but just helped with all the packing and stuff. And it really has just, yeah, grown from that. And then, yeah, it would have been about that time that uh, we added we had a crochet actually we had a range of crochet kits for a while um they proved a little bit too expensive for people it didn't quite work it was all it was, they were gorgeous it was all um british wool and we did all the wool balling in-house uh we packed all like the stuffing there were amigurumi animals and also some cushion kits and things i loved those kits but they weren't um kind of commercially viable so they only lasted a couple of years um and it, then it really was when i was the needle felting was doing really well more people knew about it and I was wanting to do something else and off the back of that came the embroidery designs so they were the first set that we did of animals some of which is still going um were based on kind of just some sketches and doodles that I was doing without a view to them being anything else than just a sketch and a doodle and then it kind of started kind of thinking there's perhaps something else here and I can draw and turn those drawings into a craft kit as I, I, that combination of those two things, I just hadn't occurred to me before. It hadn't been a thing. Um, but it was, yeah, that was a real kind of moment. And then the embroidery is now our kind of key range. Yeah. Um, and it's not just me doing the designs anymore, but I still do a lot of, a lot of the drawing for them. Um, so yeah, there was the embroidery. And then, yeah, we've just kind of carried on and we added weaving, 
and then cross stitch and then most recently the felt craft kits which mm-hmm. I, I love as well they're beautiful so. yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely and and I, I really thought it was a great detail that you mentioned around the crochet kits being both beautiful and very special with British wool you were really proud of them but then they weren't profitable or they, you know, the price point was too high for the consumer and they didn't do well. And so you had to phase them out. And I think, again, to not see that as a failure, but to say like, you know, just because I love this doesn't mean that this is going to work for the business. And so making that decision, I think, is is really important. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the packaging has evolved over time, because one of the things that's important when you are wholesaling kits to retailers, and we mentioned in the intro, you have almost 600 retailers at this point, is that the kit has to sort of do well on a shelf in a shop. So, um, you know, the consumer needs to be able to, at a glance, understand what's inside this kit. It needs to not get shop-worn easily, right? It needs to be able to sit on that shelf, be picked up and put down, picked up and put down by all kinds of different people all day long, right? Um, And still look good. Um, and so, I mean, I have designed one kit and it was published through a big publisher, but it was very fascinating when it came, you know, it was all finished and it arrived at my doorstep and I was like, wow, this thing's like foolproof. Like, and, and then you see it at Barnes and Noble and you're like, well, that's why, like, you know, who knows who's going to pick this thing up and there's no way to get in there and get this stuff out unless you actually buy this. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you've sort of figured that piece of the puzzle out. Yeah. So as I say, we just started off with, um, brown box uh, brown boxes they were actually ream boxes for paper that you um buy when you buy um like a chunk of paper and it comes in a box they it was those boxes that we found i sourced them um wholesale from somewhere i'm not entirely sure how i found them um but they were really flimsy which was one of the issues with them and then also i really wanted to i've always been quite ambitious with the business it's been organic but ambitious and i really wanted to push things forward and in the craft kit world kind of in 2015 kind of time everything was in plastic bags so cross stitch kits and stuff so many plastic bags um or or even just a plastic bag without a hanger on that's just kind of sitting on the on a shelf um or brown boxes um and we decided well i decided to go for it and get some proper packaging designed um so we worked with a local graphic designer who did our first box designs which were these beautiful um kind of botanical illustrative drawings over the boxes with lots of hawthorn um and then animals kind of leaping around with space then for labels um and we've always done um plain boxes which we then label um which means that we can buy boxes in bulk kind of proper bulk tens of thousands bulk and then just do the labels for them. And if a kit doesn't work, if we discontinue something, there's no waste, um, which is one key thing for us. We work really hard to um, have as much or as low waste as possible with everything. Um, So yes, we had those which were kind of fold up boxes. So it was a big net that kind of came flat and you had to put the hook bits over and put them in tabs and all of that kind of stuff. So they were really, really strong um, and did us really well for quite a while. But then, as things ramped up and we needed to up production, we we're always looking at ways that our systems can improve. And one of the main systems that was going to change for us was packing quicker. Um, and the boxes were a huge time sap on that because they took ages to kind of hook around and put together. Um, so we, we, and I think we had already started with embroidery boxes, which were just tuck boxes. Um, and we decided to do a revamp again a couple of years ago on the, um, all the packaging and we've moved everything to a tuck box system. So just a, a flap, a glued kind of uh, tube with a, a flap in at the top and a flap in at the bottom. Right. So much quicker for packing mm-hmm. um and a lot of what we do kind of comes down to yeah how quick can we pack it um what's yeah how can that system improve um so the and we changed the designs entirely and we added a lot more color in um to really make them stand out we got amazing feedback on our packaging over the years and really kind of very much a lot of feedback from the fact that we were one of the few companies doing something a bit different in the craft kind of world in the UK particularly um, really kind of there wasn't much else out there that was in nice giftable packaging um, and that made a huge difference 
and it got us into some of the wholesalers, sorry, some of the stockists that we've got into. Um, we were in the VA, for instance, um, in their shop. Uh, we worked and did a bespoke range for the National Trust, which is a huge um, UK uh, like heritage organization with over 200 stores. And we did specific kits just for them. And that was all off the back of the packaging um, because there wasn't anything else that kind of stood out like that. Right. And, and like you say, and, and had had a bit of thought about it and was going to withstand being picked up and dropped and <laughs> people fingers trying to eke in and, and pull stuff out and, mm-hmm. and things. And you, you can never fully um, kind of measure against what's going to happen to stuff once it's in store. Uh, but we do, we're always trying to improve and trying to change things up. Um, we don't have like built in hangers on our boxes, but we offer put to put hangers like glued hangers on them for stores that want to hang all the products and things like that. So we're flexible and we work with the shops depending on what um, display space they have, what they've, what they've got available to them to make sure that the stuff is going to look as good as it can because we want it to sell. We want it to work for them and we want it to work for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love if you could talk a little bit about the importance of photography. You have beautiful photography on product photography on the Hawthorne Handmade website. So each of the sort of kits, samples, you kind of get, you can see what it looks like when it's all stitched out and it's completed. Um, and you, you can also see what the supplies are going to look like um, and things like that. And so, you know, I think the quality of the packaging is hugely important, but then also when a new, I'm imagining when a new wholesale account is considering carrying um, these products, they're going to look at the photography to determine whether or not this is something they actually want in their store. Yeah, I think the photography for anybody selling online has got to be top of your list. It really has. Um, there's a lot of bad photography out there. And therefore, it's not all that hard to stand up and, and stand out, really, um, with a bit of decent lighting. And I have to give total props to our photographer, who is Stacey Grant. Um, she is amazing. She does all of the styling um, all the actual photography, editing, etc., for us. Um, and she specializes in craft photography. Um, so she works for Search Press, um, mm-hmm. or does a lot of their stuff, um, various other craft companies. And uh, she really knows her stuff. Um, but she also is amazing at listening to a brief and looking at a brand and what they're trying to get across and then managing to do that with the stuff that with the kind of props and everything that she pulls together um and we really worked with her initially when we decided to kind of go for it with professional photography um that um the colors that she uses and the kind of feel of the style was right which is kind of grown up but fun at the same time so there's lots of fun colors in there um you'll find some of like our needle felted animals in little scenes that she has created for them all made out of kind of cut bits of paper or little kind of uh, bits you pick up in your local craft store kind of little balsa wood bits and pieces um there's, there's some really cute fun little ideas that she comes up with um and she's actually she just today sent us through some pictures for some new cross stitch that we've got coming out and they're, they're a bit of a different design a bit of a different palette to what we've used before and she has taken that and mixed it up with the previous palettes that she's used and the previous look but just shifted it slightly towards the new kits and their their feel so it's not they don't stand out they said they won't look wrong against the previous pictures that we've got but they are their own thing and in their own right and i think that's an amazing skill to be able to do that um and that's entirely her and the comments we get from the photos is uh, is not necessarily a daily basis but it's definitely a weekly basis we will get feedback on the photos because we we obviously allow all of our stockists to use those on their website and everything as well um which makes their lives so much easier um and we have all the cut out the, the boring the white shots as well for them if, if needed and the the picture of the box etc could you talk a little bit about um how you found these wholesale accounts because I know that that's another piece of this puzzle which is to say like it sounds like in the beginning you were teaching workshops and um, had your gallery and it was fairly easy to connect with some new stores and and build that first sort of initial set of um, of wholesale clients but over time you know you said you were ambitious which I really appreciate and really wanted to grow this business so um, how did you go about finding shops i guess i'm i'm thinking as you know in the beginning it was probably uk based and then and then later in the us 
Yeah, so initially, um, we really did a lot of trade shows. And because I'd been going to trade shows as a buyer, um, that was familiar to me. It was uh, an obvious move because I knew that was where I got stuff from. Um, so we booked a trade show called the British Craft Trade Fair. Um, and I did that for the first one. I think it was 2014, uh, early on in like spring 2014, we did that. Um, and we were the only people there with craft kits. It was all in amongst the kind of like we were talking about earlier, the fine arts um, yeah. level of stuff. It was amazing jewelers and ceramicists. Um, and we were there with our brown box craft kits. And um, it remains one of the most successful trade shows that we've ever done. It wow. was insane. Uh, we won an award whilst we were there for, I think, best new products. Um, it was an amazing experience. And we just were taking orders constantly. And it was myself, when I say we, it was myself and my mum who um, helps with the business quite a bit. She's always done all the trade shows with me. Um, and kind of really helps also on a kind of always on the end of the phone kind of way um but we do we, we love doing the shows together and that was such a success that then trade shows became a big part of the model um so we have uh, well until 2019 done at least three or four trade shows a year um and that's all been uk we did a um one in Germany, 2019, uh, the H&H. Well, &H, right. Um, so uh, we, we went out there and did that. That was really good. It was a bit of a different experience doing one in Europe um, and in a country of a different language. But then the people that were there were from all over the world. It was so diverse. I mean, I, I don't think we actually spoke to all that many Germans, even though we were in yeah. Germany. We yeah. were speaking to French and Brazilian and a lot, a lot of Americans um, and British who'd come over and stuff. That was a really great show. Um, more from a, more from an experience point of view than necessarily a sales perspective. But um, that's the thing with trade shows, though. There's always more to get out of them than just straight sales. The conversations, I think, are a, a really an not such a tangible thing to measure, but um, definitely something that's a real benefit from them. Um, so we've done lo yeah, loads of trade shows. I went out to um, Creativation mm -hmm. in 2018. I didn't actually have a booth there, but I, I visited with some friends who did and um, and just kind of, yeah, walked the floor for three days and met people, went to all the talks and stuff, which was great. And um, yeah, so that's been the definite key uh, pusher for finding people. And then... In the earlier days, it was also a lot of outreach. So a lot of cold messaging people, finding people online, finding out the right name, giving them a quick call, dropping them a catalogue over, um, just sending them all our details. And it's the kind of thing that I did work hard at it, but we got a it sounds like I always don't want to sound big headed. It's a very British thing <laughs> to be kind of modest, but we've got a really good product. And that did a lot of the work for us uh, because we were quite unique at the time. There really wasn't a whole lot around like that. Um, so people and if a buyer gets put in, something is put in front of them that is a bit different and a bit unique it's they're like great this is this is saving me having to do work <laughs> so um so that can save an awful lot of time for them um so yeah a lot of outreach and um, we've been doing less of that recently partly because having the time to do it it's quite a, it's quite a big thing and um and there's only so many hours in the day but we've found that we've got a lot of organic growth um just from word of mouth and people seeing us in some of the stores that we're in so um, and, and seeing us, the people we work with and collaborate with and it coming, sales coming off the back of that. And then in the last year, FAIR has been a huge game changer for yeah, us. Yeah, I was going to ask about FAIR. So for folks who aren't familiar, FAIR is an online wholesale marketplace. And, um, and I wondered, you know, some people really argue that the, the fees are too high and things like that. But it sounds like for you, it's been really helpful. Well, we're used to paying for trade shows. So when a it's a twenty five percent kind of founders fee for a first order from somebody that you haven't uh, bought to the site that they've kind of found for you, um, and for us in comparison to what we pay for trade shows, once you've paid for the space, paid for your booth, paid for all the stuff you're getting there, all the, your accommodation, everything that goes with it, 
it's actually really, really affordable. And then subsequent orders, uh, I think 15%. But if you bring people there direct, so all of our previous customers, almost all of them have now moved on to buying through FAIR. Okay. And we, we don't pay any commission on them. Um, but they get the amazing benefits. They get the 60-day payment terms. They might get free shipping. They can get credit on their account. They, they, so many things. It's all very much a kind of feels too good to be true. And I've no idea how their model's going to work over time. I don't know how fair are going to make any money. I mean, they've got they've got a lot of venture capital right now, which kind of like keeps things going to a yes. certain point. Yeah. Well, those people are going to want their money back at some point. Mm. That's the point that I'm kind of in- intrigued as to what will happen. But um, but they've been superb. They're really supportive. Um, anytime we've needed help or assistance with anything, they've been there. Um, and yeah, I had a bit of a look earlier. So over the um, we've just been with them just about over 12 months and because they didn't open up in the UK until quite a while after they'd started in the States. Um, and we've, uh, I think, yeah, it's close to 500 customers just through fair from the last 12 months. Wow. Um, which is amazing. And, and I say half of those are in, uh, in America. Right. Which is where we are focusing our efforts at the moment in terms of growth and, and growth potential. Um, it's obviously still sticking with the UK. Um, but, um, as I'm sure you're all aware, Brexit has been a major disaster. Who knew that was going to (laughs) come? And, um, it's, uh, the EU is just not a doable thing for us at the moment. There's too many restrictions, whereas working with the States is really easy. Um, and it's the same language. Um, you, everyone is, well, not everyone, but so many people are into crafts there. It's a really easy market for us. And FAIR has just opened that up hugely. Um, and is the reason we're heading off to uh, Chicago in a couple of weeks. Right, to, to be at H&H America. America's. Yeah, yeah we're yeah, so which, excited. Yes. Oh, I can't wait. I really can't. Though I did just look at the weather earlier. It was going to be hot. So. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it is going to be hot. I know. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to wear this sundress while I'm there. So, yeah, that's great. And, um, uh, so I wonder, do you have somebody on your team now who just manages these wholesale accounts? Uh, not at the moment. It is still myself. Um, so we are actually looking for someone to do that at the minute. But um, recruitment is hard. Um, I was listening to uh, your podcast with um, the guys from uh, the weaving, the loom company, whose name has just jumped out of my head. Oh, Shock Spindle, maybe? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and they, they were discussing how, how difficult recruitment was and hiring. Yeah. Um, and it's the same here. It's um It's really hard to find people. And we want to find the right people with hiring and running in terms of running the business this got to be the most difficult bit it really it really has um i mean i can deal with cash flow and i can deal with other issues coming up but finding the right people to help us move forward who are there for the right reasons is incredibly tricky and to be honest at the moment it's just getting people to apply for a job is really tricky yeah. um so we are yeah we're on the lookout at the minute for someone to help us on the wholesale side mm-hmm. um, because not much is happening with it it's and even though without doing much it's got growth so we've got when we, we've got growth in 2022 on 21 which was and 21 was an amazing year for us so we're in a really amazing position with it it's doing incredibly well and just think if we could get somebody just doing that and that was right. all that they were working on uh, the, the potential there was huge but it really is finding that right person um so at the moment there's it's mainly myself and also my operations manager helps on aspects of it and a few of the other team members here and there so yeah and you mentioned 2021 was great can you talk a little bit about the impact of the pandemic i know we did an article about craft kits during the pandemic and you were mentioned in that piece um, and so, uh, you know, was wh- what was it like for for the business during that period? Yeah, it's that, um, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> it was uh, I even though we've now had a bit of time to kind of uh, reflect and stuff, even though it, it's not the pandemic hasn't gone away. But but we, we've got a bit of space to reflect that it's still really hard to come look back and go wow what the, what happened um because we went we had certain weeks in the early kind of 2020 so like april may june 2020 we were 1200 percent up um 
and we had the same team. Um, so there was five of us and we were, I, I've, ne I've never worked so hard. It, it was insane. We got to know each other very, very well. So when it first all started kicking off, we thought, oh, this is going to be horrendous. Um, we put one of our staff members on furlough straight away because we just like, we've got to manage this um, and not have too many people in the space and things. And then the orders started to come in and they just did not stop for 18 months. It really was. And it was kind of after three months of just not stopping and us kind of going, this, this has got to ease up at some point. And it, it really just didn't and until kind of about this point last year, really. Um, we were yeah, through to the middle of 21 before it started to kind of just pull back on the gas a little. Um, it was insane. And that was very much direct customer stuff. Um, so we've been very focused on the wholesale, but this was certainly a boost through our own website and through our Etsy store. Um, and we're also on a couple of other UK marketplaces and, um, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of orders a day. Um, and we suddenly worked out and realized how much work we could do in a certain space of time and how to improve our systems and change our processes. And we now there's only six of us still um because we've gotten so lean and so uh, we've got such a good knowledge now of how to do everything really really condensed and without any waste and everything that it's given us a huge boost on that side for the business to really work out what we can do um and then the other side of it was that we had this huge up so we went right up to the top of the roller coaster and it did then come down again um and now we're heading into a cost of living crisis the supply chain issues that we've had have been difficult to navigate we have just about kept on top of that we've kind of seen some things coming and managed to hedge our way around it pretty much we have like our wooden hoops for instance in our embroidery kits they for a good six months at uh, one point i can't even remember when a lot of people couldn't get hold of them they were stuck all, all the embroidery hoops were stuck in china somewhere on, on a um on a uh, ship or in the Suez Canal <laughs> I've kind of forgotten that that happened as well um, so we've had all these kind of bits come flying at us and we have pretty much managed to bat them off but it, yeah it's come down again in terms of sales but then and that's on the direct consumer side but then the wholesale is still growing um, so it's a real roller coaster it is I've um, so I've been running my own business for 12 years now from previously having the shop and I've never known anything like it. It's um, you just don't know what's what's happening next. And that's still the case. We can't kind of relax. yet. I don't feel. And your kits are really made for beginners. I mean, in your, you know, in your description, they, they are kits for beginners. And I wondered um, if you could talk about why you kind of stick with that level when it comes to a kit. Yeah, so I get asked this a lot. Um, like, why don't you do more um, yeah, expert level things? And I feel with that that there are other companies who do that and they do that really, really well. Um, and we, our focus is beginners and that is, that is what we do. And I think that there's a lot of skill in knowing how to do that. Um, so I don't really at this time want to dilute that really we we know how to do this one thing very very well um and i am only a kind of beginner mid-level on a lot of these crafts that we sell so i i do, I do know kind of what we the, the kits we do i know how to do those crafts very very well to the level that we sell them at um so i don't have that next level experience i am not kind of royal school of needlework trained in embroidery and can do gold work and stuff i don't necessarily know about um di all the different fabrics that you can stitch on or working with um i, I know a lot about needle felting i do i do know a lot on that side but then it, it starts to get into real kind of high expert levels of tuition um required to kind of jump to that next stage and that's just not something i feel comfortable doing and giving out to other people because it's not something i'm confident with myself and one of our things is we're providing people with a level of expertise for the level that they are working at um and we don't have that for the next steps and it's just yeah i, I like the fact that we do really really good beginner instructions um and you can t learn a brand new craft totally from scratch having never done it before by picking up one of our kits and um yeah that that's our thing 
And can you talk a little bit about e-commerce? So you mentioned that you are on Etsy. Um, and so sort of why stay on Etsy? I know we talked about FAIR. When it comes to your website, and it sounds like your partner is a web developer, which is uh, amazing, um, is that a Shopify site? And if so, do you have a separate wholesale side or how does that work? Yep, so we have a Shopify store um, It's just being updated at the moment, so we'll have a, a slightly refreshed one coming out soon. Um, and like you say, yes, that is my partner who does that for us, so that's rather handy. Um, and um, that works really well for us, the way the Shopify system is set up it's just easy um all the payment side of things is just easy especially now they've got their new um 2.0 system so it's much more drag and drop so if owen can't do a an edit on something can't do a tweak actually with the new websites now i I could probably manage that myself with my basic knowledge um and yeah it just works really well for us and then we have a, a wordpress and woo site for our wholesale um which is set up um kind of for international purchases so that can be um uk stockists eu states or australia as well um that's actually not being used much at the moment because almost everybody is using fair oh interesting. Um, so, yeah that's so interesting it's kind of that we're keeping it going for the for the minute um because i think i i'm very cautious of putting all your eggs in one basket right. um and fair could just disappear tomorrow if it wanted to same with like people if you're heavily reliant on instagram or something they could just switch it off um it's that wonderful thing about having your own email list and your own blog and stuff it's all it's so important um, yeah so we'll, we'll and as you said with fair um sorry to drop but as you said with fair like uh, those initial investors, those venture capitalists are going to need to get their money back. And so it'll be interesting to see what the future holds. And it's possible, you know, that company will go public. And if it does, sometimes the priorities, you know, shift from the priority shifts to being for shareholders versus being for, for users necessarily. Um, or they could get sold to, you know, a private equity firm. And again, there's then, you know, they often want efficiencies. So maybe the quality might change. So it is, it's so hard to know, but it's so fascinating how, how well it's done for you. Yeah. No. And, um, I've seen the same for quite a few other people and I think they've grown too quickly. I think they've put too many brands on the site because I do know quite a few people now who joined up in the last kind of six months who haven't managed to get any traction on there whatsoever. So I think we were quite lucky in that we joined, we were an early UK adopter. Um, so we've done quite well off of that, but I'm, yeah, I'm conscious that it's um, out of our control as to what happens. And like you say, we're going public potentially. I think that's a strong likelihood and we've all seen, the changes that have happened to Etsy um, and things um, yeah, with, the, so, uh, with the shift of that. So. Absolutely. And and are you still on Etsy and, and mm. why, what is the argument to say, well, yeah, and we're going to stay there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We are still on Etsy um, and we still do well on there. So I guess that, I guess that's the argument to right. say on there is that, um, that the sales tick over. Um, they aren't as big as they were in the middle of the pandemic, um, but they are good enough to make it worth our while. And it doesn't take a huge amount of upkeep. Um, so we get a new listing on, we work on our tags, we change, like I'm playing around with our titles. I'm, I need to look at the descriptions now that the um, right. SEO is taking into account the descriptions. We haven't got around to that yet. Yeah, uh, but we've got all the photos already, and it doesn't detract from our own website. I think that's one of the main things is that it works alongside it. It's a different audience, um, and we it finds us new people. Um, so we, I see a lot of people who moan about the Etsy fees. But God, you'd be paying a lot more if you were going to try and get those same number of people in front of your own store. <laughs> you really would. Um, so the eyes on our products that happen um, and just that thing of people seeing you kind of seven times before they might want to actually make a purchase. It's another tick on that list. Um, so, yeah, for the moment, it's it's still working for us. I, I really like it as a community. Um, it's obviously got its flaws. I actually ended up on Radio 4 last year on the BBC talking about its flaws. Um, but, um, yeah, so it's not perfect, but it, for the, at the moment, it, it ticks enough boxes for us. What were some of the flaws you pointed out during that radio interview? That was all about the resellers. Oh, um, yeah. So it's been really interesting. Obviously, there's been the... 
people um, just buying the stuff from China, the AliExpress, Alibaba stuff. Um, and then in the UK, I don't know if this has been the same in the US, but in the UK, people have been buying stuff at like local bargain stores. Um, so they, the local bargain stores that have got some kind of quite nice looking homewares, they're actually probably really cheap and tacky and have come from China in the first place. And you buy them for like uh, £10. And then they're maybe spraying them and putting them on Etsy for £45. Um, so that's where the, the article on the, the BBC had come from was people complaining about that. Uh, but I and I was talking about that fact that that's actually there's a lot of stuff in the embroidery um and in the craft kit uh industry that's the same so there's a lot of kits that you can buy on alibaba and aliexpress um that people sell as their own and you can see them you can spot them if you go down if you search embroidery kit on etsy and pootle down the lists you'll start to see a couple of the very same designs but sold by different people and they might have pho photographed them themselves to make them look a bit different, but it's the same kit and it is one that you can go on Amazon and get and stuff and um, sold as a small business handmade craft kit. Um, yeah, which is, um, and it's, it's definitely damaged our business. It's definitely affected our sales uh, because they can sell them for half the price because uh, they're buying them for a couple of quid from China. Um, so, um, yeah, that was one of the main things that that was talking about. So. And if that, I mean, that's happening in craft kits. It's literally happening in every single yeah. category. So, yes. um, it and, you know, it, it's, it's yeah, it, it's a huge issue, I think, um, with the Etsy platform and certainly not something I think that they um, are addressing to the degree that they could. I no, I think they, they know full well about it and it's making them money. And uh, that's their bottom line at the end of the day. Um, so you mentioned earlier um, that you do a lot of the drawing um, for and, and initially did all of the drawing for especially for the um, embroidery kits. And do you have outside artists now that you're commissioning, you know, or is every... I guess every product that Hawthorne Handmade sells is your own signature product. So you're not, you know, source. I mean, I guess the supplies, maybe the scissors and things like that, you're sourcing elsewhere. But when it comes to the kit designs themselves, um, those are all yours. It's not like you're curating a collection of kits from other um, designers. But do you have another in-house designer you're working with now? Yeah, so we have Claire, who is our lead designer, and she does all of our graphic work. So everything that goes out on the website and on emails, all that kind of thing, um, labels and stuff. And she also works on product. So she, for instance, has done, we've got a range of embroidery kits called Wonderful Women, um, which is, we've got eight of those at the moment, which are all um, a diverse group of women doing hobbies, basically. So there's a gardening one, a cycling, hiking, baking, that kind of thing. Um, she's done all of those. Um, she's worked on, you know, quite a number of the embroidery designs that we've brought out more recently um so she's an amazing illustrator she um did uh, art and illustration at university um and is a real real asset to the company so she works in-house um and then we've worked with uh, freelancers so we have a lady laura howard who works on, with us on our felt craft kits um and that's her speciality she has um, released books um about three or four books i think all about felt craft um and really really knows her stuff there and again that comes to pulling in expertise mm -hmm. um, because she then helped developed developing the instructions for those kits was all done with her um, and putting her years and years of knowledge into that um, and just those little tips and tricks that you can only get from having done it for years. Um, so that's all gone into the felt craft kits. And we've I did actually for, for a while as well work with another needle felt designer as, uh, for, on a few kits just because it was a point where I didn't have enough capacity in my time to, to do any more, uh, but we wanted to bring new designs out. So we worked with her for a while I've actually brought that back and I'm back doing the needle felting now um, and then the weaving side of things we I kind of like developed the colors and the feel of like the uh, the palettes for them and it's actually my mum who did the um the weaves for the weaving kits to put a, to put a pattern into the kit there it's slightly different because you don't have to follow the pattern you can go off and do your own thing but if you want to follow the pattern that's there for you and yeah that was actually I think I did two of them and my mum did four of those so yeah it's a bit of a mixed bag and um, last question before we get to your recommendations, which is around the future. So you've been doing this for a decade more, um, and it's a lot of work. It's expanded enormously. As you said, there's still enormous potential um, for expansion. And in the long term, do you 
have hopes of being able to sell this business? Are you planning to pass this business on to family? Or what do you think the future will, the long-term future will be for, for Hawthorne Handmade? Yeah, at the moment, we've been talking about this kind of thing a lot recently because we've been doing a lot of planning. I'm actually starting a course in September, like a um, a kind of mini MBA course of business and growing and leadership, that kind of thing. Um, so my head is very much in the business and still running with it at the moment. I'm only 37. So I'm not even 37. No, yeah, it's ne- next week I'm 37. <laughs> um, but um, I- I've still got uh, quite a bit of time left here at the moment. Um, but that is with a view that there is value in this um and at some point in the future that might be um we might need to bring in some funding via equity maybe something along those lines um but those are things are all kind of there's stuff that we're talking about now but just so that we've kind of got our heads around it so that we can see the signs for when it starts to be needed we're just kind of yeah there's a lot of prep work that we do and a lot of um thinking about the future but with a kind of not yet, but you know, just so we know where we might be heading. Um, but at the moment, it's there's so much I want to do, and the problem is just having the time to do it. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I really want to. I want to grow the team um, to free myself up uh, to be able to do the bits that really push things forward and 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 really um, uh, change, yeah, move the needle. Um, and I can't do a lot of that at the moment because we're still a small team and um, and I end up working kind of on the day-to-day bits. So that's my real next kind of main ambition is to build that team up and get people in place um, who can uh, do all of those aspects and I can kind of focus on the uh, the big picture. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Um, and I would love to get to your recommendations because you've got some good ones. Um, the first one is a podcast. I'm a huge podcast listener. Um, and I know this one is very popular. It's called Gold Digger and it's with Jenna Kutcher. Yeah, I think a lot of people will have heard of this, but if you haven't, I will just want you to go and listen to it because I, I, I love Jenna Kutcher. She's great. Um, she is so non-judgmental in her approach to things. Um, and she talks about business, but it has then kind of expanded more into life stuff as well. Um, and she's just got such an amazing uh, view on things that I find really inspiring. And I come away, I listen to it in the car on my drive to work. And it just sets me up right for the day. And I, every single episode that I listen to, I will scribble a few notes down. Not while I'm driving, I'll add at the end. <laughs> and some, uh, I'll scribble a few notes down and there will be something that helps me move forward with my life or with the business from every episode. And I, th- I think that's amazing. And you also wanted to recommend an app for editing videos for social media, which is awesome because video is where it's at, especially on Instagram. Um, and this app is called Viva Video. I actually have not heard of this one before. Yeah, I think quite a few people haven't. Um, and I find it, I've tried a lot. Um, and I find it the most easily kind of, it's very intuitive. You can really figure out where stuff is. Um, it's got a lot of music in it as well, which has got all the copyright stuff sorted for you. I pay for the pro version, but I think it's about like, I don't know, seven pounds a year or or something ludicrous like that. Um, and, um, yeah, I just find it really simple to use. I can just pop something in there, chop it around, um, change the like the canvas size, which I find really helpful. So if you're working across platforms, you need to change it from an Instagram size to a TikTok size to a YouTube size and do all of that. You can do all all those bits in there, which I've just found really helpful. And um, yeah, it's the one I've kind of landed on. So Great to know. Yeah. And you have another, you have another recommendation, which is your local museum. Um, it's called Museum of Making in Derby. Um, so tell us about this museum in case anyone is local and would like to visit. Yeah, so it's it's not actually local to me anymore. It's where I come from. It's okay, it's, and it, it's actually pronounced Derby for Darby. the UK. Darby, got it. For, yeah, like <laughs> I guess like how you say the name kind of thing. Yes, um, and um, yeah, so it's just an amazing museum, and obviously a lot of people won't be able to visit it in person, but there's the online side of it that you can look at as well. And it only opened um, last year, I think it was after de- delayed by the pandemic, and it's just an incredible look at both the local world of making and manufacture but also kind of how that relates to the wider world as well and their whole collection is on display 
Um, so you can go into the collection rooms and they've got everything grouped by material and it is the most incredible space and you can just go in and go to ceramics and mm. it's all these museum artifacts and things made locally that are all ceramics or mm. all metal or wood and things and it's at a place that was kind of well Derby was kind of one of the real early uh, starters of the industrial revolution so it's oh, got a lot wow. of heritage behind it it's part of the derwent valley um there was like this run of mills through this valley um and i think it's actually a world heritage area um it's an it's an amazing kind of story to this place and somewhere that's probably not it's not on any tourist trails a lot of people wouldn't necessarily hear about it but they've opened this museum and it's got to be one of the best museums i've ever been to and then in the main atrium kind of when you go in there is a rolls-royce jet engine hanging from the ceiling um and uh, we actually stock their their shop that they have there as well um and when i visited when it opened with my mum and dad and there was this rolls-royce jet engine that has parts in it that my dad made hanging above my kits in the shop oh. um and it was just it's just a lovely kind of oh yeah, my gosh. Uh, local thing that's and it's, amazing it's an amazing space and such a big thing for an area that doesn't really have a huge amount of that kind of thing it's that kind of stuff is not um there's not a massive kind of cultural center around there so it's a real uh a big big thing for for that space and and that area and um yeah i, I just loved it and i can't wait to go back yeah what a wonderful recommendation well stephanie thank you thank you so much for taking the time to be on the craft industry alliance podcast it was great talking with you oh it's been lovely being here thanks so much abby and you've been listening to the craft industry alliance podcast i'm abby glassenberg Today's episode was brought to you by Warp and Weft Textiles. All products at Warp and Weft Textiles are chosen to use the skills we learn from our elders to make heirlooms for our future generations. All the fabrics, notions, patterns, and publications found at Warp and Weft are plastics free and intended to be handed down to future generations. Find your future heirloom fabrics with a 15% off discount for Craft Industry Alliance listeners. Use the discount code WEFTY15CIA, that's W-E-F-T-Y-1-5-C-I-A, and follow Warp and Weft Textiles on Instagram at Warp and Weft Textiles, all spelled out with no periods or dashes. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. When you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. Join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.